following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. John Bunyan back in the 1600s. It was a confrontational word. It was this, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? Now Bunyan was a Christian. These words cut his heart, and he began to search after God. The result was that he began to preach righteousness and holiness. He was, by theology, a Reformed Baptist. He did, in all honesty, teach imputed grace. 
He did not, as I teach, simply imparted grace. But in 1678, he had published for the first time the number one allegory in the English language even today. It has been in continuous print from 1678 until today. It has been read and printed and referred to more often than any other single book except the scriptures themselves. For many, many years, a pastor would not consider preaching without referencing Pilgrim's Progress. It became the standard of the Christian church. I want to share with you the intro to Pilgrim's Great Distress as found in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress edited by C.J. Lovick. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave. I lay down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream, I saw a man clothed in rags. Well, what was the cave that John Bunyan laid down in? It was the jailhouse. Bunyan was put in prison because he was preaching the gospel, and he was not allowed because he was not licensed by the state. But he could not stop preaching. He earned his income by being a tinker. A tinker in that day was one who repaired pots and pans, traveling village to village, asking if anyone needed their pot that had burned out on the fire repaired. It was dirty, cheap work. He was absolutely poor. He was married. He had children. He lay down in the cave of his jail cell. He says, As I slept, I dreamed a dream, and in this dream I saw a man clothed in rags, standing in a place with his face turned away from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a heavy burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book, and begin to read and as he as he read he wept and he trembled not being able to contain himself he cried out in a loud voice what shall i do in this condition he went home and he tried to keep to himself as long as he could so that his wife and children would not see him in distress But after a short time, his anguish had increased so much that he could not remain silent. So he began to share with his wife and children what was on his troubled mind. And this is what he told them. Dear wife and children, I am greatly troubled by this burden that torments me and grows and weighs so heavily upon me. Moreover, I have received information that the city in which we live will be burned with fire from heaven. When this happens, all of us will be destroyed. Unless, by, by a way I do not yet see, some, some way of escape can be found so that we may be delivered. Hearing this, his family was greatly amazed not because they believed what he said to be true, but because they thought he was losing his mind. So as evening approached, hoping that sleep might settle his mind, they quickly put him in bed. But the night was so troublesome to him, as troublesome as the day, and instead of sleeping, he spent the night in sighs and tears. So when morning came, his family came to find out how he was doing. Worse and worse, he told them. He started speaking to them again about his fears and concerns, but they became cold toward him. They tried to change his outlook by treating him rudely. 
Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, other times they would just ignore him. So he began retiring to his private room to pray for them, to pity them, and also to try to find some consolation for his own misery. He would often walk alone in the field, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, and for a long time this is how he spent his days. Then one day I saw the man walking in the field, which he often did, reading from his book, greatly distressed in mind, and as he read, he burst out, as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? I noticed that he looked this way and then that way, as if he would run, yet he stood still because he could not decide which way to go. And just then I looked, and I saw someone named Evangelist coming toward him. Evangelist came up to the man and asked, Why are you crying out? He answered, Sir, I understand from reading the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. I'm not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Evangelist asked, Why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I'm afraid that this burden that's on my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And, sir, continued the man, If I'm not ready to die, then I'm not prepared to go to judgment and from there to execution. Thinking about these things distresses me greatly. Well, if this is your condition, why are you standing still? Because I don't know where to go. Evangelist gave him a parchment and unrolled it so that the man could read it. It read, Flee from the wrath to come. When he'd read it, the man looked at Evangelist very carefully and said, Which way should I run? Then Evangelist, pointing his finger to a very wide field, asked, Do you see that distant, narrow gate? No, the man replied. Then Evangelist asked, Do you see that distant, shining light? I think I do, the man said. Then Evangelist said, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly toward it, and soon you will see the narrow gate. And when you finally come to the gate, knock, and you will be told what to do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. As I read these words, several very disturbing thoughts come to my mind. I think back about when Jesus came as a baby. They laid him in a manger. This is not what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting a magnificent king to arrive, a Messiah that they would be proud of. They expected to see a king, a Messiah, not a baby boy, born in a cave, placed in a manger. And so when the wise men came to Jerusalem seeking Messiah, King Herod asked, where is this Messiah to be born? And and he was told, Bethlehem of Judea. Well, the wise men, I find that name very interesting. It was not the foolish men, it was the wise men. The foolish men, the, the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the foolish men. They did not go looking for the Messiah because the Messiah was not what they expected. And finally, they put Jesus on a cross. They crucified him. They killed him. They murdered him. They tortured him. They spit on him. Because he was not the Messiah they expected. And even yet today, the Jewish people as a nation, as a whole, refuse to accept Jesus. And he told them, because you have not received me, Jerusalem will be destroyed. In AD 70, Titus came with the Roman army and 
more than a million Jews were killed, murdered. And for 500 years, no Jew was allowed to enter Jerusalem. Well, I look at that and and you may say, well, pastor, yes, all of that's very true. We accept that. Well, let me ask you the question that's so troubling to my heart. What if the Antichrist that you are expecting never shows up? What if the Antichrist is already here? What if the great delusion that Jesus spoke of has already come upon the church? You see, it's very clear that the church today is offended by John Bunyan and his teaching, his word that you must leave your sin. What was the was the wording of that again? Let me give you the exact wording. I want to look it up again. I have it in Pilgrim's Progress. Let me find it. Here it is. The word of the Lord to John Bunyan. Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? Well, today the modern church believes that we can have our sin and still go to heaven. A Reformed Baptist did not teach that in 1678. I have to be very plain with you. I've been struggling all of my life to try to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist church, I was forced to leave it after 10 years of pastoral work in that church. I was finally forced to leave it because I found that their teachings simply were not following the word of God. The Adventists did something that was very foolish. They kept saying, all through my experience with that church, we have the truth. We have the word of God. Search the scriptures. It is the authority. But when I searched the scriptures, I did not find their theology taught in the scripture. I found rather her th- the theology taught in their prophetess, Ellen White. And I finally had to face the reality that I had to leave. And the leaving cost me everything. It cost me my retirement money from that denomination they refused to pay what they owed me more than sixteen thousand dollars they refused to pay they said sue us i said i can't do that but i've not been able to stop this search i tried to find a comfortable place in the dutch reformed church i couldn't because I found their teachings were not in line with what I read in the plain scriptures. So there has been a driving force in my life, even as there was in John Bunyan's Christian, recognizing increasingly the burden of sin on my back and being told to shut up and don't worry about it. It's not a problem. You're saved. Don't raise the question even, Ray. I had pastors that I would constantly ask this question of, what are you going to do about your sin? Ray, stop it. We are under grace today. Our sin is covered. You don't have to leave your sin. In fact, you cannot leave your sin. Forget it. Just enjoy Jesus. Really? So John Bunyan was wrong in saying, I have this burden on my back and I have to get rid of my sin? 
There is no allowance in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress for walking in rebellion against Jesus. It is the narrow road he teaches. Now, I have no argument with, I'm uncomfortable with, but I have no argument with John Bunyan's teaching imparted or imputed grace, saying that the grace of Jesus forgave our sins. Well, he did forgive our sins, and he will continue to forgive our sins as we repent and walk righteous before him. But you know what? I didn't struggle with the core message of Bunyan's message. Neither did I struggle with George Whitfield's message. I didn't struggle with Whitfield. The disciples of John Wesley and the disciples of George Whitfield tried to stir up a storm and separate the two men. Over this issue of imputed imparted grace over this issue of the continuing walking in sin and there were letters exchanged between these two godly men and Whitfield and Wesley came into agreement that there was no conflict between them if they both taught that you must leave all sin and walk righteous before God with no known rebellion in your life. You must be utterly sold out. And they both agreed to that. So while I disagree violently with John Calvin, I don't think he was even really a Christian. He burned a fellow Christian at the stake over the question of the Trinity. Really? He was a cruel dictator over Geneva. That's not the gospel of Jesus, not the one I read. But I lay that aside. Many of you listening come from a Reformed background. I have no struggle with those of the Reformed background if, like Whitfield or other great Reformed teachers, you no longer will allow the continued walking in sin with the proclamation that you are saved. That is an ugly deception. Now we find in Matthew, Jesus says these words, Not everyone saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of the heavens, but the one that keeps on doing the will of my Father in the heaven. In other words, the person that Jesus says is going to enter into the kingdom of God is the person who stops sinning and continues walking in righteousness. Now, many of you, as you listen to this, are very uncomfortable because you recognize that there is known sin in your life and you have excused it, frankly. And so, like Bunyan, or unlike Bunyan, you are not uncomfortable with that burden of continual rebellion against God. So you don't cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? Because you have been taught that you are saved with your sin, in your sin. So Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of the heavens. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we we interpreted divine revelation in your name, did we not? And in your name we cast out demons, and in your name we did many deeds of power. And how plainly assure them I never recognized you And you must depart from me, the ones working lawless deeds or deeds of iniquity or sin. So very clearly, Jesus is saying to his disciples and to those he's teaching, look, you're going to have to leave all of your sin or I will not recognize you on that great day of my coming.
Now, where I struggle with this is that this is a calling to a much higher place than any of us have ever imagined. Because we're Western institutional Christians. And we have our worship services and we have all of our our pastors and our prophets and our priests and and we believe them. And we have all of these wonderful men, Charles Stanley and many others that are great teachers. But they teach that you're allowed to continue in your sin and that you can never lose your salvation. John Bunyan would not have agreed with this. George Whitfield would not have agreed with this. Jonathan Edwards, another great Reformed preacher, would never have agreed with this. He would have said, you have never been saved. You're just religious. I know by the lack of response to this broadcast that this message is not a very popular message in Washington, D.C. I understand. Sometimes I feel like I'm fighting windmills. I'm speaking into the air and the words are being lost. That raises the question of Antichrist. I want to share with you out of First John, there are only four passages of Scripture that have reference to the Antichrist. But we have in our theology in the church in America a very firm understanding of Antichrist. And frankly, we, like the Jews, are looking for something that probably will never come to pass. And just as the Jewish people could not accept Jesus, our theology of Antichrist has allowed us to avoid accepting Jesus Christ. Oh, we can handle theology, we can handle the church, we can handle the the songs and the praise and the worship and the bands and the entertainment and the jokes and the... We just don't want this righteous Jesus. First John, the fifth chapter, I'm sorry, First John, the second chapter, verse 15. You must not love the world, neither the things in the world, If anyone may love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because every conceivable thing which is in the world, and this is what's in the world, according to 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the conceit of life, that is, the worldly man. And when Jesus comes to us and tells us, like he did Nicodemus, you must be born from above, we say, what are you talking about, Jesus? I accept you. Do you think accepting Jesus? Nicodemus accepted Jesus. Oh, Rabbi, we know you are sent from heaven because of the signs you're performing. Only someone sent from God could do these things. He accepted Jesus. And Jesus just cut him off at the knees. Said, you must be born from above. Today, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's not going to change what he says. What I'm trying to say to you is there's a place we're being called, but we're being denied the experience of repentance by the expectations of Antichrist. 
and the expectations of the Christian faith we've been taught in America. So many people who are very religious utterly deny that a Christian can stop sinning. Well, let's be clear. A person who is following Jesus, like those who followed him after he fed them the loaves and the fishes, will utterly resist the word of Jesus that your sole source of nurturance must come from eating his body and drinking his blood. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And they walked away from Jesus. I fear many of you have walked away from Jesus because you refuse to hear the word that you must be born from above. And being born from above means having the enticement to sin removed from your heart so that you no longer walk in sin against Jesus. He says, The world is passing away and the lust of it, but the one doing the will of God continues into the age. What is the will of God? To walk without sin. Children, it is a last hour. This is 1 John, the second chapter, verse 18. Children, it is a last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Accordingly, we know that it is the last hour. The word Antichrist is only used four times in the Scriptures. It's used in the passage I just shared, 1 John 2.18. It is used again in 1 John 2.22, again in 1 John 4.3, and again in 2 John 1.7. John is the only writer in the New Testament who uses this term, Antichrist. Antichrist is a transliteration of the Greek, Antichristos. Here the preposition anti indicates exchange or replacement one thing in place of another now one of the old old writers the classic writing of robert law he said the prefix anti denotes not opposition simply but opposition in the guise of similarity John uses this term of the corrupt influence at work in false teachers who were disseminating a Gnostic interpretation of Christ's person in place of the biblical revelation. What is the Gnostic interpretation of the person of Christ? Well, all of First John is written against Gnosticism. Gnosticism has moved into the modern Christian church, and I believe it is Antichrist. Now, I know that what I'm going to say to you will be very hard and very offensive. I don't mean to be offensive to you, but I do mean to lift up Jesus Christ. I can do no less. Otherwise, I'm dishonest with you. Gnosticism in the simplest form, teaches that a man in the flesh is utterly corrupt, hopelessly corrupt, but that in his spirit he is like gold. He is pure in his spirit. And so this gold can be dipped in the sewer brought out of the sewer and washed off and it is pure gold so the gnostic teaching is that you can never remove this flesh that is utterly corrupt but you don't need to remove the the corrupt flesh because the spirit is gold 
Thus, the teaching today in the modern church of what is called the sinning Christian. The sinning Christian. The teaching that a man is saved by accepting Jesus Christ and by saying, forgive me for all of my sins, and I'm saved. I'm not saved from my sin, however, because I'm always going to sin until I die. And the teaching in the modern church is that when I die, then I'm made righteous. In other words, when the gold is brought out and it's washed of the filth of the human flesh, then I am saved. I am pure gold. This is the ugly Gnostic teaching that is prevalent in the American Christian Church, and we have exported this all over the world. And the result of this is that we teach an Antichrist message. Are you surprised at the Antichrist? It is a delusion. He continues, that is, Robert Law continues, the supreme danger of any false system is in its power to deceive by the opposing similarity, to promote itself in the guise of Christianity. It is significant, moreover, that it is not in the world, but in the perversions of the Christians that St. John finds the embodiment of the idea of Antichrist. So, Robert Law is saying, the Antichrist we must watch for is not the Antichrist that we claim in most Christian teaching that will arise in the world. It is the Antichrist that comes in the guise of similarity among Christians and teaches a theology that allows a person to say, I am saved eternally, I cannot lose my salvation, but I can never quit sinning. Robert Law says, John has been writing of the church conflict with the world and its ideals, but now he points to a danger more subtle and more critical. This enemy fights Christ in Christ's own name using its weapons, the corruption of the Christian truth. If you want to look this up, it's found in Robert Law, pages 320 and 321 of Robert Law's book on holiness. Now, I don't know if this is frightening to you, but it is to me. There has been a, a driving inner presence of the Holy Spirit in my life from an early age, and it has been relentless. He has been relentless in calling me forward disciplining me and calling me to walk in righteousness and for many years i resisted walking in that righteousness because i said i'm saved i have repented of my sin i mean this man said to me pastor you need to repent and i angrily said to him what are you talking about i repented i'm saved i'm good to go i'm on my way to heaven and he looked at me with great sadness he said, you're deceived. I was so angry, I told him to stop talking to me. And I recognize that some of you may be very angry about what I'm saying, but you won't turn it off. Because there's a, a clarion ringing of the bell in your heart that says your worst nightmare that you must leave all of your love of this world is true if you're to go to heaven and you know that's true in your spirit 
Now, if I were teaching that you must strive now to leave your sin and the rest of your life you're going to be white-knuckling it, you would have reason to strongly object to what I'm teaching. But that is not what I'm teaching. I am saying to you that the work of being made righteous is the work of the Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus. Just as salvation is a free gift in the forgiveness of our sins, so likewise being made righteous is a free gift given to us by Jesus Christ. But there must be a place in our hearts where conviction is allowed to grow. And I hate to say this, but I must. Just as the Lord said to John Bunyan, Will you have your sin and go to hell? Or will you turn from your sin and be saved? There is no in-between place. This is the gospel. So many Christians that I speak with They love the NASCAR races. They love the football games. I stood at Caesarea just a few short days ago. And I looked at that great harbor that was built by Herod. I looked at the foundation of his great palace and this incredible harbor. But that wasn't all that was there. There was a magnificent amphitheater for plays. There was a huge area for the gladiators. There was an incredible place that would seat 10,000 people for the chariot races. Even in Jerusalem, Herod had built a great amphitheater for entertainment. Rivaling, surpassing even the Kennedy Center. Magnificent, opulent, opulent, gorgeous. I stood there and I looked at that and tears ran down my face because I saw how the the earthquakes and the waters of the Mediterranean had destroyed the grandeur of what King Herod had built. Only the archaeological digs remain and the outlines of what he accomplished. It's all there. The history is plain. This place where the Apostle Paul was held in prison for two years before being shipped off to Rome. It's all there. The story is true. There must be a recognition that Jesus did not take his disciples out for a night on the town to the amphitheater to watch the entertainment of the world. Jesus did not take his disciples to Caesarea Philippi for entertainment. He did not take them to Caesarea, the harbor, to watch the horse races and the chariot races or the gladiators. All of this was going on when Jesus was walking in Galilee? So today you think you can go to the football games and you can go to the entertainment. You can train your children in all of the skills of the world. Today you can go to the movies A man just called me and he said, Oh, Pastor, my wife and I just went to Beauty and the Beast. It is an utterly wicked movie. Disney World has finally completely gone over the road into hell. Homosexual scenes, 
The beast has the horns of the devil. Beauty is dancing with the devil. A perfect picture of the modern Christian church. And you'll take your children to Disney World. You'll spend more than a $100 for the tickets to get in for one day. Where do you want to go? I want to go to Disney World. Are you kidding me? You think you can eat from the table of the devil and then sit down at the table of Jesus? Do you think you can go to these wicked movies like Beauty and the Beast and consume the darkness and the lies of the devil and then you're going to go to church and you're going to sing songs to Jesus that say, I love you, Jesus? Are you kidding me? You think you can lie at work? You think you can go after the money with your ambition? Do you think you can commit fornication? Do you think you can go to the porno sites? Do you think you can hold bitterness and anger in your heart? Do you think you can envy your neighbor's car and house and wife? Do you think you can sin so boldly against God and be so casual about your life and that you're going to go to heaven? You have an Antichrist doctrine. It is the surprising Antichrist. I'm sure you've not ever heard that Antichrist is among us now. It is a gospel of similarity to the true gospel. It tells us that our past sins are forgiven. But it tells us the enticement to sin cannot be removed from our hearts. And we're going to always be sinners until, like the Gnostics, we are relieved of our corrupt flesh and then we're going to be gold and we're going to go to heaven it's a lie it's the antichrist gospel it's not going to happen I have a song I want our producer to play for you a friend played this for me in fact it was brother ed at the prayer meeting on tuesday night it's an old song notice that it's not about unconditional love of the antichrist doctrine it's unfailing love may i tell you please jesus loves you and he wants to make you righteous mr producer do you have that song ready Good, let's play it.
out of time for today I'm praying for you you've got some really tough decisions to make about whether you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to call you to himself go to our webpage nationalprayerchapel.com you can listen to this broadcast again this evening I pray God's grace and peace and righteousness in your life Thank you, my brother, my sister. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.